0: Six weeks ago, a light plane carrying House Majority Leader Hale Boggs and Alaskan Representative Nick Bagich disappeared on a flight in Alaska. Today, the Air Force there announced that the search is being called off.
1: On November 24, 1972, the largest search in American history ended in failure. Despite a colossal effort spanning 39 days and 325,000 square miles, no sign of the missing plane surfaced, at least at the time. Despite the efforts of Coast Guard cutters, a top-secret spy plane, an elite army mountain unit, and hundreds of volunteers, nothing. Despite more than 1,000 Air Force sorties, 47,000 feet of film covering 125,000 square miles of terrain, and 88 possible sightings, nothing. Despite everything, nothing. Your first reaction might be, well, it's Alaska. That's not surprising. And that was mine too, at least initially. But for no sign of the plane, not one solitary piece to ever surface was very rare, according to Air Force Major Henry Stalker, who told reporters that, quote, 95 to 99 percent of what we're looking for, we locate. Of the last 1,200 planes to vanish in Alaska, an official said, only three had never been found. From iHeartMedia, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walczak. Two days before the search ended, Peggy Begich, Nick's wife, received a sinister, cryptic letter pasted together from scraps of newspaper, like an old-time ransom note. Your husband, Mr. Begich, an American-Croatian-Alaska Democratic Rep, has been assassinated by our organization. He and others aboard will not be found. Reason? Criminally insane nature of his pact with American-Croat separatists. Congressional Record E1359596. Croatian nation doesn't exist, never did. Same will happen to everybody in destructible engagement against our dear Yugoslavia. High position in American fascist government will not matter. We are not in connection with Yugoslav government, organization of Yugoslav nationalists, or UNA. The letter arrived in a handwritten envelope, postmarked November 20th, and mailed from Detroit. Think about that for a minute. Someone took the time to paste together an anonymous letter from newspaper clippings, then mailed it in a handwritten envelope. Sure, they could have had someone else mail it, maybe a friend in Detroit, but the whole thing seemed amateurish, like some kind of bumbling hoax. That said, the FBI took it seriously, and for good reason. Starting in the 1960s, Croatian separatists had waged a violent international campaign to establish an independent Croatian nation, split off from socialist Yugoslavia. For two decades, they carried out a series of high-profile hijackings, bombings, and assassinations, including multiple attacks in 1972, the year Begic, who was of Croatian ancestry, disappeared. Perhaps the most famous occurred in January 1972, when a briefcase bomb planted by separatists ripped apart a commercial airliner high over Czechoslovakia. Today, the bombing is best remembered not for the 27 people who died, but for the one who lived, a flight attendant named Vesna Volović, who survived a 33,000 foot fall to the ground. Eight months later, on September 16, 1972, exactly one month to the day before Nick Begich vanished, separatists conducted near-simultaneous attacks on two different continents, a hijacking in Sweden and a bombing in Australia. That day was a turning point for the movement, according to Dr. Matej Nikola Tokic, the author of a book called Croatian Radical Separatism and Diaspora Terrorism During the Cold War.
2: These two events, in coordination with one another, actually very quickly marked, I think, an important turning point for Croatian terrorists, this idea that there are no innocent victims. Before 19, September of 1972, Croatians were very clear about targeting either institutions of the state or those they deemed to be involved in the state. So they were more than willing to to target civilians in places like Belgrade, um, Serbian civilians in their thinking, who in, in any case couldn't be innocent. But for the first time, non-Serbs, non-Yugoslavs were involved in Croatian terrorism with the hijacking of the airplane, and then with the bombing uh, on George Street in in Sydney. —
1: Dr. Tokic, who conducted extensive research for his book, had access to, among other things, the papers of certain international spy agencies. I asked him if he ever came across any mention of Nick Begich. —
2: I've never come across discussions of him in any security services archives that I've seen. Clearly, there's a lot of stuff I, I was never able to get to, but particularly in Australia, ASIO, which, belongs to the Five Eyes agreement, so the United States, Canada, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and Begich never comes up in any of those documents.
1: Begich had no known ties to separatists, though he did speak to the American Croatian Academic Club of Cleveland, Ohio, in December 1971. But that speech was benign. Not everyone advocating for an independent Croatian state was violent. The only reason I'm even mentioning it is because it's what you'll find referenced in the exact part of the congressional record cited in the letter claiming Begich had been assassinated. Which, by the way, how many hoaxers cite the congressional record? That letter had been signed by a right-wing fascist group called ORUNA, the Organization of Yugoslav Nationalists. The only problem? By the time Begich vanished, Orjuna had been defunct for 43 years Dr. Tokic, for one, despite deep digging, never found a single reference to any group claiming to be Orjuna between 1929 and now until I emailed him. Do you think that the most likely explanation is that this letter was, in fact, not sent by pro-Yugoslav uh, individuals but by Croatian separatists?
2: That, to me, would be the most likely um, explanation, right? It's It's a way of exploiting this tragedy to force FBI attention away from Croats towards other groups, right, to, to, you know, because the resources for combating these organizations was quite small. I mean, they were very limited, certainly in the beginning. And the idea is if, if the FBI is spending its time chasing shadows or chasing organizations that don't exist all the better that they're not chasing pro-separatist movements um, and I can very easily see the thinking on the part of of this letter writer as saying like look you know there aren't so many people um, engaged in these questions in the FBI and if they are occupied otherwise not with us but with something that they'll never even be able to find then less time for them to deal with us and this letter strikes me um, most likely as serving that purpose.
1: And serve that purpose, it did. The FBI conducted investigations in eight cities, even interviewing Begish's parents in Minnesota, but it found no proof of any plot to murder the congressman. Curiously, though, the Bureau did recover two latent fingerprints from the handwritten envelope. I'm not sure whether or not those fingerprints still exist. Believe me, I looked. But if they do, tucked away in a file somewhere, it would be fascinating to run them through a modern database to see if any matches pop up. In late December, the missing men were declared dead.
0: Hale Boggs of Louisiana, who was lost last year in an airplane over Alaska, was a man who belonged to the House of Representatives as much as any member in this century. Boggs was majority leader when he was lost, and today many of his congressional colleagues, along with Vice President Agnew and former President Lyndon Johnson, were in New Orleans for a memorial service. Fred Briggs was there. The memorial service was held at St. Louis Cathedral in the French Quarter. It was open to the public, friends, political and personal, and that takes in a considerable number of people. The late Hale Boggs was a Southern Democrat, yet in his 32 years of service in Congress, he bucked many regional trends. He became an outspoken civil rights advocate in the mid-1960s. He called for the resignation of J. Edgar Hoover, and he even criticized the oil depletion allowance, not a necessarily popular thing to do in an oil state like Louisiana. Yet, throughout all this, he remained immensely popular in his home state and with his colleagues in Washington. They were here today to pay their last respects.
3: If Hale Boggs the individual, cast a giant shadow, So did his nearly three decades of distinguished service in the House of Representatives. He loved the House where the esteem, respect, and love in which he was held by all members, regardless of political persuasion, have never been surpassed in the history of that great institution. He loved his colleagues. He loved his friends. He loved his family. He loved people. He loved his country. And above all, he loved his God.
1: Three days later in Alaska, Hundreds gathered at East Anchorage High School to pay tribute to Nick Begich.
3: Sunday, January 7th, has been proclaimed Nick Begich Memorial Tribute Day. The voice of Governor William Egan. We are going to miss our friend who contributed so much to the well-being of all Alaskans during his Time with us.
4: Distinguished visitors, and Nick's beloved family. There's something about this great land of ours that attracts men. Perhaps it is a land, its awesome and even terrifying beauty. The richness of its vast wilderness, the bounty of its forests and streams. Perhaps it is the opportunity, the fabled El Dorado, the adventure land we learned about as boys in which part of us will always pursue. Perhaps it is a challenge of life in a society that is still in the making, of existence in a land where nature will always have the upper hand for the small tasks of survival must compete with the great decisions of the day. Perhaps it is the people. Whatever the reasons, many come. But as all of us know, very few stay. The challenge of Alaska exceed the strength of all but a few good men. Nick Begich was one who stayed For he was one of us, an Alaskan. And for all and anything that means, he is with us still.
1: That was Emil Nadi, a prominent Democratic activist and Alaska native. One week after the memorial, Nadi and dozens of others gathered at a convention to choose a candidate to run in a special election called to fill the state's vacant House seat. Three people sought the nomination, Nadi, State Senator Chancy Croft, and Peggy Begich, Nick's widow.
5: We are now about to set aside as much of our sorrow as our hearts will allow and to undertake the process of selecting a successor to Alaska's U.S. House seat. As both a candidate and as Nick's widow, I recognize my own responsibility to indicate the time for setting aside memories and undertaking that process. That time is now, and I expect that Alaskans will react with the same resilience and hard work that always surfaces at difficult times. During the past two weeks, I have traveled throughout the state and spoken with countless Alaskans. I've spoken with many of you and with friends in Washington, D.C. Although the events of the past few days have prevented my speaking to you, I wanted to call this meeting today to renew our discussion, to give you the open opportunity to question me, and to say with as much force as I am able, I am a candidate. And I doubt that many of you will ever see a more resolute or committed candidate.
1: Competition at the convention was civil but fierce. At one point, Peggy claimed an important committee had been rigged against her. When she placed third in an initial vote, she decided to throw her support to Nadi, who then won.
4: Emo Nadi, president of the Alaska Native Foundation and chairman of the party that nominated him a 39-year-old native born of Athabascan and Italian parentage in the river village of Koyotuk, now the first Alaska native ever nominated to run for Congress. Larry Carpenter, Broadcast Center News.
1: Nadi's triumph was short-lived, though. A month later, he narrowly lost the special election to Republican Don Young, a riverboat captain from Fort Yukon, Alaska, who had been defeated by Nick Begich the previous November even though Begich was missing and presumed dead at the time. Amazingly, Young, now 86, still serves in Congress. I spoke with him by phone in late 2019. And so, Congressman, you're the Dean of the House, the longest-serving Republican congressman in American history, one of the 10 longest-serving congressmen of any party in history, often referred to as Alaska's third senator. Uh, But you hold another distinction, one of the only people to lose a congressional race to a dead man. Uh, Do you think you would be in Congress today if Nick Begich had lived?
0: Uh, That's a question I can't answer. It chances be, you know, because remember where I'm from, Fort Yukon, I was setting up to run in 74, uh, but uh, you know, who knows what the votes, remember it was a Democrat state. Uh, we had uh, Bill Egan was the, was the governor, uh, was a, dem- a Democrat legislative body. These were good Democrats, by the way. Uh, so, uh, well, you know, who knows? Uh, it, it, you know, he beat me. Uh, but uh, I was able to come through in the general election. And
1: Around the same time Begich vanished, Young himself had narrowly avoided a deadly crash, something all too common in Alaska.
0: I got on an airplane once in uh, 85 with my wife and myself and the pilot and uh, we left, and the weather was terrible, and uh, we got getting up quite a ways, and the icy conditions set in, we started pulling ice in, and I'm flying co-pilot, and the uh, pilot said, we've got to go down, and I said, you're right, and I thought, oh boy, because you can't see anything, wings are icing up, and you started down, we started down sort of a gradual approach, and we finally broke out. — Out of the uh, icing conditions, where you can see we had followed the contour of one of those mountains that comes out of McGrath down into the area. And that's that's what God was taking care of me, because if we'd been 200 feet or 200 yards uh, in a different angle, we would not be here today.
1: — Young's victory in the 1973 special election had a major, long-lasting impact on Alaska politics. Many people in the state, Democrats at least, wonder what would have happened if Nick Begich had lived and Young had never been elected. Sierra Begich Slade, Nick's granddaughter, is one.
6: Had he lived, um, and if this never happened, I think that Alaska and our politics would have gone in a much different direction. I think the fact that Don Young has been in his position for so long, um, has taken us down a different path. And I think that if my grandfather were still here today and if he would have been able to live that full life, things would have been different. And right now we're, you know, we're in a recession (laughs) as a state and things are looking pretty grim. And maybe that wouldn't be the case if he were still here.
1: Even though you never met your grandfather, do you feel a sense of loss?
6: I do. Um, Just because I feel like we would have had things in common. And I don't necessarily feel that with too many relatives, um, but just from what I know about him, it seems that he he had such a genuine heart.
1: Did you ever hear any personal stories about your grandfather that you can share? Any anecdotes?
6: Nothing. Honestly, growing up, we didn't talk much about what happened, the disappearance, about my grandfather in general. I don't know much about him other than what I've heard from the community. So. Yeah, hearing the details of that, hopefully through this podcast, will be pretty interesting.
1: And how do you think that the loss of your grandfather affected the family as a whole?
6: It's hard to say because we really didn't talk much about it. I don't know. I think that it would be a different situation if he were still here. Imagining his children, I think that they had a hard time with his loss, obviously. I think that it has affected generations to come as far as emotional stability, but there is a positive light to it too. And I think that a lot of his kids have been so involved in politics because they felt like they needed to, because he missed out on the opportunity to really finish that out. Um, So I think it's driven a lot of us to pursue more in his name.
1: Down in Louisiana, that same sense of civic engagement persisted in the Boggs family too, in 1973, like Peggy Begich, Lindy Boggs sought the Democratic nomination to run in a special election to fill her husband's empty seat.
0: Mrs. Lindy Boggs, widow of the late Louisiana congressman, won the Democratic nomination to succeed him. She got three times as many votes as her four competitors altogether. And Mrs. Boggs will face Republican Robert E. Lee in a general election on March 20th.
1: Lindy went on to crush Lee by 32,000 votes, making history as the first woman elected to Congress from Louisiana. She would serve nine terms in the House and later as the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. She died in 2013 at the age of 97. So up to this point, I've spent most of my time talking about the congressman, but there were two other men who disappeared too. One was baggage aide Russ Brown, a Nebraska native who studied anthropology and chemistry before moving to Ketchikan, Alaska in 1957, where he met his wife, Penny, and became a stepfather to her kids from a previous marriage. In 1972, only three months before he vanished, Russ and Penny had a daughter of their own, Marie Nicole. Other than that, I don't know much about him. My attempts to contact his family were unsuccessful. I saved Don Johns, the pilot, for last because he's a very important character in this story, the man many blame for the plane's disappearance. Johns was an extremely experienced and competent pilot. By the time he vanished, he'd accumulated more than 17,000 hours of flight time, No pilot lasts 17,000 hours flying small planes in brutal conditions in the Alaska interior unless they're talented. If you're wondering about his name, yes, Johns, J-O-N-Z, was originally Jones. He changed it to Johns because there was already a pilot in Fairbanks named Don Jones, and he wanted something unique. Johns was a blonde, blue-eyed ladies' man, an Army veteran of the Korean War, and a self-styled intellectual with a wry sense of humor and a daredevil streak.
0: He did have a a masculine quality to him, very much so. He wasn't uh, a, a very, very attractive person. In fact, he had a bit of a hooked nose. But he certainly had a lot of charisma and charm and was attractive enough.
1: That's Mike Gravel, a former U.S. senator who represented Alaska from 1969 to 81. He knew and often flew with Johns.
0: He had flown me around repeatedly uh, and was, you know, was active with political figures in the state, helping them uh, get around. uh, And uh, and so that's as much as I can recall about him. He he was a very, very nice guy and a very competent pilot.
1: Johns was also a bibliophile who, in 1956, after moving to Fairbanks, joined the Flying Poets, a group of pilots who flew around the state sharing poetry with school kids in remote villages. Around that time, he also got married, then soon after, divorced. In the late 50s, he traveled to the UK, where he tried several times to swim 21 miles across the English Channel. He was unsuccessful. Deflated and in need of money, he shuffled around Europe for a while, working for a series of airlines, including one in Luxembourg. That's where he met his second wife, Willie.
7: He was an extroverted person. He, he liked to be around people. He also liked periods where he could be alone, you know. Um, he used to write a lot, but you know, I didn't uh, keep any of, of, of the writings.
1: Did he keep a journal or a diary?
7: Yeah, he did.
1: You don't still have that, do you?
7: No, I don't.
1: Do you know if your son does by chance?
7: Huh?
1: Do you know if your son still has it? Or was it lost over time? No,
7: that was lost. I think that it was just, just thrown away after he disappeared.
1: As a journalist, you're not supposed to get attached to sources. You're supposed to be cold and objective. But I've never really believed that. I think you can be fair and tell the truth without morphing into an emotionless, automated scribe. Journalists have opinions, and to admit that doesn't mean everything we do is fake news. It means we're human. So I'll admit it. I like Willie, a lot. She reminds me of my grandma. They're actually the same age. And like my grandma, she's an immigrant with fascinating stories. Willie told me not only of Alaska, but about watching Nazis march down her street when they invaded Holland in 1940. By the end of World War II, she said, her family was so hungry, they ate tulip bulbs. Willie and Don had one child, a son, Aaron, who was only 10 when Don vanished. Don's death had a horrible impact on him, Willie said.
7: He's got his own problems, and uh, uh, trying to keep his head over water. And not to, uh, he, he's, he's a lot like his dad, in a way. Um, he's a good kid, 51 years old, but he's a good guy, Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, morally and um, he'll give anybody the shirt of his back. By the same token, he has always had a hard time living in society. He he, he just doesn't take any shit of anybody, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You know. If somebody gives him a hard time, he doesn't cower. And uh, uh, they don't like that. But, and that's the same thing with his dad, you know, his dad just told tell
1: them where to put it. I first interviewed Willie by phone in 2014, then visited her at her home in Colorado, where we spoke for several hours. In the aftermath of Don's disappearance, she said, not only did officials refuse to share information with her, likely because she was Don's ex-wife, even though she was still the mother of his only child, but most people also blamed Don for the disappearance itself. They still do. There are a few reasons for this. First and foremost, in October 1972, the month he vanished, Don had authored a controversial article for Flying Magazine titled Ice Without Fear. In it, he wrote, quote, Playing with ice is like playing with the devil. Fun, but don't play unless you can cheat. Willie said he was being sarcastic, that people didn't get his humor. He took risks, she said, but only when he was flying alone not when he had passengers. Read the article closely, beyond the sensational quotes, and you'll see that, yes, Don was arrogant, but he also recognized ice to be a formidable, powerful enemy. The weight of ice is not what debilitates, he wrote. It's the shape. 20 strategically placed pounds of ice will sink a good light twin. The day he disappeared, he flew a light twin, a Cessna 310C. There are at least two other things that cast shade on Don, too. First, it's unclear whether or not he actually had an emergency locator transmitter, or ELT, on board with him when he vanished. In his final transmission, he said he did, but the National Transportation Safety Board disputed that. Second, the NTSB criticized Johns for flying under visual flight rules, or VFR, saying the weather wasn't conducive for a fly-by-eye flight. Multiple pilots I interviewed agreed, saying instrument flight rules, or IFR, would have been preferable. So between the article, the ELT confusion, and the VFR flight plan, I get it. But I also think, absent records showing what happened, it's unfair to pin all the blame on Johns. It's unclear, for one, how much of a role passenger pressure played. Several people told me that the congressman pushed Johns to make the flight despite the turbulent weather. They were in a rush to get to Juno, then back to D.C. Regardless, as the pilot, it was Johns' responsibility to say no if he thought conditions were too poor. So then, what happened? It seems simple, right? Throw in a cocky pilot and bad weather, and voila. The plane iced up and crashed, probably into Prince William sound. Occam's razor. Case solved. It makes sense. Past ice, one other explanation, theoretically, could be that the plane suffered a catastrophic mechanical failure. But per my research, that seems unlikely. Phil Hewitt, a mechanic who worked for Johns, finished an exhaustive hundred-hour inspection of the plane the day before it disappeared. Typically, how long would a hundred-hour inspection take? Like, how long did it take you to inspect the plane before, right before it disappeared?
8: Sometimes it would take me two to three days to do that. And the reason I say that is because you gotta pull all the inspection covers off, look in there, and some of them holes are pretty tight. You're using a mirror and a flashlight. You gotta change oil, you gotta tear take the spark plugs out, clean them and test them, make sure they function and put everything back, change oil and the stuff on it check the props, clean the prop up for, you know, if it has any nicks, looking for obvious stuff that's visible, I mean, it it varies. It's kind of like a vehicle. You know, some of the Model T's and Model A's, they were easy to work on, easy to change oil, and so on, and check spark plugs. Well, you take engines nowadays in the vehicles, You open the hood, you can't even see it. It's covered with stuff. So airplanes are no different.
1: Right after Hewitt finished the inspection, and I mean immediately after, Johns flew the plane from Fairbanks to Anchorage. If there was some horrible mechanical problem, it probably would have shown up during this flight. Nevertheless, Hewitt was repeatedly interrogated by authorities, desperate for answers. He had none to give
8: they just wouldn't leave it alone because they couldn't find anybody to blame it on cuz they didn't know they couldn't they said they couldn't find the airplane so they couldn't prove whether it was pilot error or mechanical error and putting me in court only implied that it was a mechanical error on my part and they needed somebody to get tripped up and say stuff that would incriminate them and I they couldn't do it because first of all I knew I did everything right I would have a free conscience of it including today so you know and I'll tell you the same story you know he asked me over and over different questions and you know if you don't tell the truth, you have to remember it. And, you know, it has been a few years back, and I still remember it. So I did tell the truth.
1: So then, again, what happened? Why did the plane disappear? Mechanical failure, pilot error, bad weather, any are possible, all are possible. But sometimes, when an answer seems obvious, When you rely too heavily on Occam's razor, you overlook other explanations, explanations that may seem far fetched but are possible. You hear something crazy and you immediately discount it, even when you shouldn't. And this is where the story takes a dramatic turn. Because up until this point, I've had to set the scene, to share exposition and biographies and technical details. All of this is important. But it's not what kept me going. It's not why I'm talking to you today. See, just when I was about to give up, to move on to another story, someone told me something so startling I didn't believe them, at first. Only 17 months after the plane disappeared, they said, the widow of one of the missing men married a murderer, a man with mafia ties, a man who had experience with explosives. And this man told the FBI the missing plane had been bombed. Next time on Missing in Alaska.
0: So we sat there and we just kept making notes and watching all the activities and the pictures being taken. And boom, it's noted that Jerry married Peggy.
1: Before I ask again for your help, I want to thank everyone who called in and submitted information online after last week's episode. We're reviewing everything and appreciate your support. This week, I only have one task for you. Sometime between 1970 and 72, Don Johns, the missing pilot, gave an interview to an Alaska radio station. I don't know which station or in which city, but I'd guess one in Fairbanks or maybe Anchorage. If you track it down, let me know. I've never heard his voice, and I wanna see what he said. You can reach us by phone at one eight three mia tips That's one 642 8477 Again, one 642 8477 Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer, Paul Deccan is our supervising producer, Chris Brown is our assistant producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer, Sam T. Garden is our research assistant, and I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Footage for this episode was provided by NBC, KQFD, and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. Special thanks to the Alaska Film Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeart Media and Greenfort Media.